Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, who were the gods of the Bible? Were they simply idols, or were they actual supernatural beings attempting to subvert the will of the one true God? As these two spirits are released into the world 2,000 years ago, and they wrestle with each other, history takes shape. The movement of those who come to faith throughout the nations and the organizations, the institutions, the kingdoms, the societies, the religions created to suppress them, to pervert this information, and so the war goes on. This podcast is brought to you by Paranormal Contractors. If you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, this is no time to be dealing with amateurs. You need to bring in the professionals. Paranormal Contractors is a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. They utilize the latest scientific technology to investigate, authenticate, and remediate your ghost or demon problem. Call them at this new number, 631-552-5835. That's 631-552-5835. Email paranormalcontractors at gmail.com and tell them Richard sent you. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Ali Siadatan is standing by to discuss the gods of the Bible. Who or what were these gods, plural, small g, and what is their role in the world today? I was just thinking that some of you may not be aware that I have a weekly syndicated radio program out of Toronto, Canada, called The Conspiracy Show on AM740, that's Zoomer Radio, and you can also stream it live at zoomerradio.ca, zoomer, Z-O-O-M-E-R, radio.ca. I just wanted to mention this Sunday, September the 29th, John Barber, the creator and host of Real People, will be my guest live in studio and for the full two hours. John was an actor, comedian, Emmy award-winning television and film critic, a real TV pioneer, and also a documentary filmmaker who's been investigating the JFK assassination for decades. We'll talk about his early life growing up on the streets of Toronto in the 1930s, his adventures, his storied career in Hollywood, but also his conversations with the late New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, the man who prosecuted businessman Clay Shaw for conspiracy to assassinate JFK. And again, The Conspiracy Show airs every Sunday from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern. And for more show information, you can go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and click on the Conspiracy Show button. You can also stream it on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Sometimes we stream it live on YouTube. Other times, it takes a few days for that show to get posted to the YouTube channel. 
Ali Siadatan is the founder of Think Again Productions in Canada, a multimedia teaching ministry shedding light on mysteries and treasures of scriptural knowledge, which is making the Bible more real than ever. Ali has found evidence, keeps agreeing with the Bible's tale, from biblical cities peering through the sand to alien abductions and prophetic events. In 2006, Think Again Productions released the groundbreaking documentary UFOs, Angels, and Gods on Google Video, and it received 270,000 views in just nine months. His research into UFOs has inspired him to write a work of fiction in progress, as well as a second documentary on the rise of the Antichrist called Goliath Rising, Hybrids, Nephilim, and Titans. Ali Siadatan, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you, my friend? Very good. Thank you for having me, Richard. I want to talk about gods, small g, gods. And, you know, it's interesting that one of the first, not one of, it's the first of the Ten Commandments implies the existence of other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. So we're talking about not just uh, idols here. We're talking about real supernatural beings, right? I, I think the context to where that commandment comes from would point to that. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments uh, are, are, you know, part of the Bible. So if you kind of looked at the Bible as a whole, there is... Uh, much spoken about these beings that are called, as you say, the gods of the nations. Like, for instance, in the Passover passage, it's very famous, where, you know, God comes, there's, there's, you, you see it in, in cartoons like the Prince of Egypt, or in the Ten Commandments, the movie, and um, uh, God uh, says, I'm going to go through the land of Egypt, and I will judge the gods of Egypt. Now, it's hard to believe that mythological beings like Daffy Duck uh, come under the judgment of God. And there are many other passages that uh, open uh, this topic up. For instance, even the name of God in, uh, let's say, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, it says that uh, Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Now, it would be hard to imagine that God would be, again, the God of mythological beings. If he is the God of gods, then it's referring to, to these real beings. As far as the idea of the idol, well, um, we read this ambition uh, that uh, one of these beings, uh, the, uh, the shining one, Nachash, it's, it, the word Nachash can be translated as shining one because I think these beings are you know, luminous, uh, it's like they emanate gamma rays, and the word Nahash can be translated as serpent. It's like, you know, when you say Jack is running or there's paint running down the wall, it's both the word running, but the context, you know, can alter the meaning. And so we have this writing from the prophet Isaiah um, that lays bare the ambitions of this, you know, mighty and ancient being, and it says that essentially he wants to be worshipped. He wants to be like the Most High. Um, it's in the um, 14th chapter of the Scroll of Isaiah. And the Scroll of Isaiah is really interesting because a copy of it, well, many copies, were found in the 
Dead Sea uh, caves, the Qumran caves. And there is a museum in Israel, uh, the Shrine of the Book, it's called. And the entire scroll of Isaiah is laid there, and it's the oldest Hebrew copy we have of it. And it matches exactly the one that it is uh, that is in our English Bibles. And, and here we hear about the ambitions of Satan's heart. I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of meeting in the uttermost parts of the north. I will ascend above the high places of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Mm. And so this ambition that he has, this is the root of idol worship. He is the first being, the the source uh, of idol worship. He is part of the creation, yet he wishes to be worshipped as a creator. And Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says that that is the definition of idol worship. It is the worship of the creature over the worship of the crea- uh, creator. And so this is the source of it, and the rebellious um, uh, sons of God that go with him, they too embrace his ambition, and it becomes this common ambition, and so they present themselves as these beings, as these objects of worship to the nations. Right. And, and we see that all the nations record that in their histories. Well, in, in Deuteronomy, for example, the Israelites are forbidden from worshiping the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, which Yahweh, yes. your God, has allotted to all the people everywhere under heaven. So in other words, God is telling people not to worship other gods, not because those gods didn't exist, but because they were supposed to rule other peoples, not Israel. So yes, exactly. all, the, all the other nations were, God was ruling Israel directly. Those were his people. Yes. The other gods... Uh, God designated them, so he allowed them to rule the other nations. He permitted that to happen. Yes, that that is true. Uh, uh, there's a key passage. You know, when um, uh, I, I was filming this documentary uh, a long time ago, at the end of the 90s, uh, into the early 2000s, and we released it in 2006, and as part of this research, we discovered this very thing that we're talking about, um, and that's why the word gods was placed in the title. And as I was looking at all these passages and realizing that these guys were, you know, real beings, um, um, suddenly I remembered uh, something that a teacher that I was listening to kept mentioning in several of his tapes. His name was Chuck Missler. Um, he used to say, uh, when he spoke about this phenomenon in, in the Bible called the sons of God, he used to say, you know, there's a passage in Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 8 and 9, and in the uh, translation uh, that we have of the Bible uh, commonly in our hands, um, it, it's, it says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Uh, so it says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. So the nations were given inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people. So he, he divided the, the mankind at the Tower of Babel, and there were borders assigned to the various clans. And this was done according to the number of the sons of Israel, some translations claimed. The main, that was the main translation. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So he used to say, you know what, 
in the Septuagint, which was the translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, uh, done in the 3rd century before Christ, a very important document. It was often quoted by Christ, it was often quoted by Paul, and it was attached to the letters of Paul as uh, his letters circulated in the, in the early church. The Septuagint, this Greek translation, was attached to it so people could study the references, the, inc- the uh, intensive uh, referencing he was making to the Hebrew Scriptures. And so Chuck said, you know, in that translation, it actually doesn't say that the nations were divided according to the number of the sons of Israel. It says that uh, the, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. That's what that translation reads. And it was really interesting. And suddenly I thought, well, that would make a lot of sense because there are so many other passages, like the uh, Daniel, the prophet, is praying to God, and the angel comes to give him a message. But this angel says, you know what? It took me 21 days to get to you because the prince of Persia withstood me. So, wow, there's a prince, there's a principality, an angelic principality, behind the Persian Empire, and he said, you know, I'm going to then now go and fight with the Prince of Greece. Oh, there was one behind, you know, the Greco-Roman Empire, and then uh, in the temptations uh, of Christ, uh, Satan says to him that all the nations of the world have been given, un- all the kingdoms of the earth have been given to uh, to his dominion, um, and and he will give it to whoever he pleases. And so suddenly... All of these passages made sense is if, in fact, uh, um, uh, th- this Greek, you know, version uh, of the Old Testament that predated Christ, um, that said, you know, the nations were divided according to the number of the sons of God. If this was true, then all of these other passages made sense because uh, the nations would be given to the hands of the sons of God, and which which is an idiom for fallen angels in, in the Bible. And Israel, uh, or Jacob in this passage, it says, would be God's inheritance. And this would now suddenly make sense. Uh, why is it that the gods of Egypt are judged? Uh, why is it that the worship of these gods is forbidden? Because they have sovereignty over the nations, but and ori- God has chosen Israel. But originally, though, wasn't the intent, wasn't God's intent, that these angels, these supernatural beings that were appointed, <laughs> that were appointed to rule the nations, they were supposed to rule with justice and they were supposed to execute judgments on behalf of the poor and the widows and and the rest of the nations. They were supposed to rule justly, right? Well, I guess, I guess, and they were supposed to also point the nations to worship God because uh, it says that in one of the Psalms of David, it says, worship him, uh, worship him, uh, ye gods. So it's saying that it's admonishing these beings and saying, you know what, you should be worshipping him, which implies that you should be pointing worship to him. Um, now, um, yes, I mean, there's a, there's a passage in the Psalm 82 that very clearly uh, says that these beings have come under the judgment of God. Um, and um, why were the nations given into their hands? Well, if they are the rebellious angels and they have been cast out from the presence of God... They share a common lot with man after the fall. As Adam falls, and Adam is also cast out from the presence of God, and so in some ways, in the cosmic equation, man and these angels find themselves on the same side of the fence. 
But God then initiates a rescue plan. So the first 11 chapters of the Bible um, introduce the problems that form the pillars of the fallen world. Um, the, uh, that we have been you know, uh, cast out of the presence of God and condemned to the death of the soul, that, that the sons of God have not only given the scepter of rule, but they have injected their genes into us and, and have corrupted our, uh, you know, the, the human world. And finally, at the Tower of Babel, where all the nations are completely cast out from the presence of God. But in chapter 12, we hear about um, the character of Abraham. He is introduced right after all these problems are presented, and he is selected by God, and through him um, we see that God chooses a small clan from the line of Shem to become the vessel through which he blesses all the families of the earth and reverses things and pulls people out of the dominion of the gods. Now, how does he do that? He does it through the Passover lamb, because it was the Passover lamb that allowed the children of Israel to leave Egypt and to be freed from the bondage and servitude to the gods and to the Pharaoh, his, their representative. And so when he claimed the people to himself, for himself, um, it was kind of claiming something from the land of the dead. So man is left for dead, man is in the same side as these beings, and suddenly God reaches and chooses one, anoints him as a vessel that he will ordain for the redemption of the rest. And so the story of Christ finds meaning in the sense, uh, in, in, in this context, in the sense that um, we see that there was only one town in all of Israel that was not a Jewish town, and that was, you know, the Caesarea Marinera, uh, the, the uh, capital city of Rome in the Holy Land, where the government of Rome stood. So the idea was that the Romans are not conquerors. They're not going to set up shop in a Jewish town. They're going to create their own town. And so Herod had created a town uh, dedicated to Caesar. It was called Caesarea, and people can go there today. Actually, you know what? There is a stone. Of all the things that could have been found in Caesarea, there is a stone found, and you can go see it. The original is in Turkey, but the copy is still in Israel. It says Pontius Pilate on it. Mm. It was the offices of Pontius Pilate. And so it was in that town, in Caesarea, that um, a centurion, because Caesarea was kind of like the Las Vegas of that area. It was where all the garrisons came to watch the Hippodrome and watch opera and watch, you know, horse races and relax and gamble and whatever. And there was security there. And, and the head of security was Cornelius, this this guy. And he had converted to Judaism and worshipped the God of Israel. And somehow, um, you know, God chooses him to be the first Gentile, the first non-Jewish person. And so he goes, uh, he sends messengers to, to fetch Peter, who, who's, you know, a few miles down the road in Jaffa. And they come up there, and God orchestrates this in a Roman town, where suddenly this man, this Roman guy, is the first of the Gentiles to receive the message of the Passover lamb, the resurrected Messiah, and this begins the uh, salvation of the nations. Now, the Greeks, the Romans, the, the Persians, the Egyptians themselves, the Mesopotamians, um, the, the Indians, the Chinese, all nations will be now called out from the bondage of the gods through the Passover lamb, the way that the children of Israel had experienced it uh, in the time of Egypt. Now was the beginning of the fall of the rule of these beings over the nations. And so God was reversing 
uh, the paradigm and was bringing life um, and redemption, and that is why we were now able to leave their uh, power and come into fellowship with the living God, and this is why the age of monotheism began. This is why the, the thousands of years of polytheism began to collapse, and the age of monotheism began. And so what these guys did in return, because they're still kind of, there's a war and they're still there, and we can see their flying chariots over our heads to this day, what these guys did is they went dark, they went deep, they went in, their, in the ground, they formed the secret societies and false religions to attack the Spirit of God as it was moving through the nations and preaching the good news that man had been called out from this bondage and had been called into fellowship again, intimate fellowship, spiritual fellowship with the living God. Yes. And, and the, the, these princes and principalities... Yes. Uh, that were originally designated to rule the nations. Yes. Uh, Babylon and, and, and Tyre and, and all of these places. Everything They're, other than Israel. They are named, correct? We know their names. Well, there are, there are a few that are pointed out in the Bible. I, uh, <clears throat> there's one, the Queen of Heaven, for instance. She's pointed out in the Scroll of Jeremiah. The Scroll of Jeremiah is the scroll where God, you know, pleads with Israel to, to let go of its ways because Israel is, um, you know, there's murder, there's uh, the shedding of innocent blood, um, the, the widows, uh, the orphans are robbed, um, all kinds of injustice in the land. But above all, God says, the thing is they're worshiping these beings. That is the, uh, that is the main thing that, that he's not pleased with. And archaeologists have found a lot of these idols inside of the homes of Hebrews in the Holy Land from the first temple period, from the period between, you know, King David and the destruction uh, of the temple in the 5th century by the hands of the Babylonians. There have been, it's really, it was in the Babylonian exile that humbled, um, that Israel truly came to national monotheism, which kind of shows you it takes time to leave the world and come to God. It's a process sometimes. And so the well, that's why it's heaven, called Israel, right? That's why it's called. That's right. It means right. struggle to struggle with God. Yeah, that's right. You struggle with God, and I think God welcomes the struggle. But you know, you will have to give in, at, uh, and it's for your own good. And because the reason God is, you know, doing this is because he he chastises those whom he loves. He's pruning like a good gardener, so that it can bear much fruit. He's disciplining. He's encouraging. He's growing. It's not the vindictive thing. It, this is a process of enlightenment, of coming to know God, of, of, of experiencing the beams of love, okay. so to speak. So, so the, the Queen of Heaven, yeah, the Queen is, of Heaven, is, is mentioned in that passage. She's she's singled out by God, and and it said, you know, you you are making cakes to her. That your wives are doing that. The husbands are agreeing, and and I'm I'm very unhappy. Um, and and she's a very important character. She has many names, but she likes that name. And so the name Queen of Heaven is the name that she adopted in the most ancient city, um, one of the most ancient cities of the world, Uruk, uh, which is in the south of Iraq. In fact, that's where Iraq gets its name from. There was her temple, the Temple of Inanna. That was her name. That's what Inanna means in the most ancient language known to man, Sumerian. Um, Inanna means the Queen of Heaven. That's what, her, that's what it means. And her temple was there. And, and there are many things that she gave to the people, including writing. Writing came from Uruk. 
she selected a group of people that were called the scribes, and she taught them the hieroglyphs, uh, the writing. In the, the writing was given so that it could record the laws of the gods, because the laws of the gods are the codes of the matrix that inform our minds concerning the true nature of reality. And so these guys began to weave into our societies a perspective that contradicted the revelations that would come through the prophets of Israel that would be the voice of God. They, they, they altered reality in our minds. In a way, they put landmines. And so as the Word of God spread out, it was, it was meeting these alternative ways that these guys had put into, into the world. So the Queen of Heaven is mentioned. Um, was she an actual f- female uh, angel? Yes. Yes, she is, and she continues to be very... After the Holy Spirit was released into the nations, she reinvented herself as a character of the Christian Church. Um, uh, she still is very, very, very dominant and has a, a very active cult uh, center. Right now, there's a lot of things uh, with, with the use of hallucinogenics uh, that, that uh, somehow connect to her. Um, she was female, and there's a mask, and you can Google this mask, um, uh, you might Google like um, the mask of Inanna from Uruk, and this mask is five thousand years old. I mean, you got to see it. You can see the, the it's it's very clear the face. It's a, and this thing was in a museum in Baghdad, and when the United States attacked, uh, and there was chaos, and there was a looting of this museum, and this guy stole this mask and he took it to his house and buried it in his backyard. And he kept it there. And I watched this myself. I watched this on television. I watched this on, on the news. He came back and to the authorities, and he said, I am getting all kinds of nightmares. I'm hearing voices. It is com- very scary. I know it is because of this mask. It is driving me nuts. I have to return it. And he returned the mask. And I think that this may be a likeness of her actual face. And it is it has survived for five thousand years, and and this man who stole it, you know, had to bring it back. And yes, it does look human, because I think that, um, um, yeah, I mean, the well, image. You, you said that the Queen of Heaven has reinvented herself as a Christian character. What are we talking about? The Black Madonna? Yes, Mother Mary. She calls herself, and she has a doctrine that preach that she preaches. She says that the Church must believe that she is the co-redeemer of the world with Christ, and then salvation will come. So it's called the Marian movement. And I don't mean to offend anyone, because I know that people, you know, uh, it's a big movement in the Church, but it, I, I really uh, suggest that people look into it. There's a great documentary, which you, I think people may be able to watch for free these days on the Internet. It's called Messages from Heaven. And it does a great study of this phenomenon. But so she has a career. She's known as the Queen of Heaven, Inanna, in, in Sumer, in, in, in uh, Babylon she becomes Ishtar, in Assyria she becomes Astarte, in uh, Greece she becomes Aphrodite, and she continues to have a career into the post-Holy Spirit era, when God releases His Spirit over the nations and calls a, um, a sampling, a fruit, a remnant of people out of all nations to Himself, um, in this period of history that we still find ourselves in, um, these angels, these fallen angels, these principalities, they reinvent themselves. They reinvent themselves as saints to be worshipped. Uh, they hide behind that mask. They reinvent, she reinvents herself. And alternative false religions that rise, because 
there are two spirits released in the world. The Holy Spirit that is famous, that comes from the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. But the letter of John tells us that there's also the spirit of the pseudo-Messiah, or Antichristus, which means the spirit that seeks to replace the Messiah with an alternative. It means the pseudo-Messiah, the pseudo-spirit. And that spirit which is released is, is um, creating alternative realities. And so these guys now disguise themselves in the age of monotheism as characters of monotheism through false religions, alternative um, perspectives, and characters of, of the faith itself. As these two spirits struggle with each together and they wrestle together, they form the basis of the DNA of 2,000 years of history. And definitely we can't get into it right now, but this was kind of uh, the bedrock of history. As these two spirits are released into the world 2,000 years ago and they wrestle with each other, history takes shape. The, the movement of, 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 of uh, those who come to faith throughout the nations and the, and, the, and the organizations, the institutions, the kingdoms, the societies, the religions created to suppress them, to, suppr to pervert this information, and, and so the war goes on. More of my conversation with Ali Siadatan when Conspiracy Unlimited continues. It's Friday, that means a visit from the real John Constantine, Christian Dicadur of Paranormal Contractors, a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. Hey, Christian, how are you? Hey, Richard, how are you? Terrific, thank you. And you're coming to us from Ocean Avenue in Amityville, Long Island, New York. You're literally right across the street from the, the infamous Amityville Horror House. That is correct. I mean, I could literally, if I threw a rock right now, without a lot of force, I could hit it. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, the new owners have changed the, and rightfully so, I guess, uh, changed the uh, the outside appearance of, of the home. And uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, thank goodness for GPS because uh, it brought me to the uh, the right location. But uh, no, I'm, I'm parked right in front and I'm, I'm looking at it as we speak. Let's talk about some more tech, some more devices that you use during your investigation. You wanted to talk about Static electricity detectors. What are those? Okay, so for the longest time, individuals in the paranormal industry, they and, and they still do. And I, I'm not a firm believer in EMF, uh, which stands for electro, uh, electromagnetic fields detection. EMF detection, they're used by electricians. They're used by so many channels of trade. And you're going to get a lot of false positives with EMF uh, equipment, detection equipment, if you're going to use it for the paranormal industry. However, in the last decade, what has become very popular are static electricity detection. Now, static electricity is very hard to, it, it's a lot harder to get a false positive with a static electricity detector because when somebody passes on, the soul does in fact carry an amount of static electricity. Sometimes you can get a false positive if you rub your hands, you know, violently together. If you, you know, if you rub them violently together and you put your hands near the detection, of course. However, all things considered, if you've gone through the appropriate protocols in order to prevent that, uh, then you can certainly rely on uh, a static electricity detection because it's 
one of the best tools to see if you have paranormal presence in your environment. It's something that I use continuously and I, I absolutely swear by them. All right. If someone has unwanted paranormal activity in their home or business, how do they get in touch with paranormal contractors? Well, if somebody wants to get in touch with us, uh, we'd be more than happy to help. You can reach us at paranormalcontractors at gmail.com or toll free at 1-866-724-0800 or you can contact me directly 416-994-0777. Thank you, Christian. Thank you, Richard. It's always a pleasure. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Ali Siadatan from Think Again Productions is here. And we were talking earlier about the two spirits that have come into the world, the Holy Spirit, of course, on Pentecost, but also the spirit of the Antichrist. Tell me more about the spirit of the Antichrist. A, a really good um, story, I find, is one day, you know, Jesus <coughs> says to his disciples, uh, come with me, and they're like, okay, where are we going? He says, well, uh, put on your sandals, because we're going to Caesarea Philippi. And... Um, Basically, if you go to the Sea of Galilee in Israel, it's about a two-hour walk, I think, north of the Sea of Galilee. And they go there, uh, they have a conversation, and they walk back. It, it's a whole day's journey there and back. For us, it would just be a bus, a bus ride. Um, so what was there? Well, there was a big, the same way that Caesarea Marinera was the capital uh, of government uh, for Rome in Israel, um, the administrative capital. Caesarea Philippi was the religious capital of, Israel, of Rome in Israel. There was a, there's, you can still go there. It's a giant cliff, huge, huge, you know, little mountain, and it was full of holes in it. And these holes, and when you go there, they have the pictures of what it would have looked like. There was temples to the various gods. Jupiter. Um, yeah, Jupiter was there as well. Apollo, you know, stepping out and uh, reaching out. And underneath, there was a um, kind of a basin, like water, that would be turning on itself and spiraling into the earth. Um, and this water was called the Gates of Hades. That was the name of it. And people would come, and they would take animals, and they would wrap them together, and they would tie their feet together, and they would throw them in here. They would pray. And if, this, if their animal went down the drain, it meant their prayer was accepted. If it didn't, it meant it wasn't. So Jesus takes his disciples and takes them to this place. He then goes and stands on top of the rock, on top of where these uh, um, you know, temples uh, are, are built. And he says to his disciples, Who do people say I am? And they give him answers. Some say, you know, you're, 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 you're John the minister, you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or some other prophet. And he says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, well, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so he says to him, well, 
Um, flesh uh, and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This was a spiritual revelation from God to you, Peter. Like, you're not smart enough to know this, but God revealed this to your heart. And I also tell you that you are Peter upon this rock. I will build my community. And, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So what's interesting was that he was standing on this very rock, which was a representation of the spiritual government of the empires of the world that were under the rule of the fallen angel. And he basically made a declaration saying that he was going to build something now, something new, something that, didn't, that did not exist, a new spiritual community, and that the gates of Hades, meaning this very thing that was underneath him, that represented the power of these guys, would not overcome it. So the rock was actually this thing that he was physically standing on. And he was basically saying that these powers are going to be diminished. And I and my, my new spiritual reality are going to expand, and, and, and these powers will not be able to overcome it. Their time has come to an end. I remember the first time I went there... I was invited to participate in the pastor's tour. Everyone was a pastor. I was invited to go, and there was Catholics and there were Protestants and, uh, there in this tour. And once they went there and everyone saw this, suddenly there was this moment of deep shock when we came in the bus, this acknowledgement that, wow, this conversation was never about the fishermen from Galilee, Peter. This conversation was about the rock that was the representative, uh, representation of the, the spiritual forces of the temples of these fallen angels, these gods. And when everyone came back in the bus, there was a great silence, and the tour guide picked up the microphone in a jolly way, he was an Israeli guy, to now talk about the next place, and people just asked him to be quiet as they took this moment in, that suddenly being there and understanding the context had brought such insight into the writing of this passage and what it could have meant. And so I think that this is what happened 2,000 years ago, what the Lord claimed here, that the, these powers began to be diminished, but we are still at war with them, and, and we're heading to a climax, and their presence has marked history. Um, they have had different names. They called themselves gods to the peoples of the world, but they were not gods. Um, they uh, were called the sons of God in other passages in the Bible, um, and today, perhaps, they, in the secular world, where they have kind of planted the idea of secularism, where they erase gradually biblical worldview, which is our true history, and, and kind of reinvented reality for the generations that were born after the Age of Enlightenment, after the 18th century, they created a new world, you know, like Nietzsche, you know, he wrote that book, right. Thus Spoke, as I was, The God right. is Dead, the idea that... The last Western Christian died, the, the only real Christian died on the cross. Right. And so the West has moved on. And so in this new world that was created, because these guys create what I have, what I have called thought veils. And they, the first thought veil was in the Garden of Eden, where Satan says to Eve, what did God say? What did God command about this particular tree? And, um, and, and you know, if you kind of Google uh, Assyrian uh, sacred um, um, grove, you'll see these trees were not like the kind of trees in your backyard. Um, what did God say about this? It was like a technology nearly, you know, like something you take in that really changes you at the level of the genes. And 
um, uh, Eve said, well, God said, if you eat from this, you will die. And what did Satan say? He said, you will not surely die. So he reversed the commandment of God, but you will become wise like one of the gods. And so he, she knew that these beings were there, that he was one of them. She trusted him. He was an important you know, guy. And so what he did is he, he altered the nature of reality in her mind with his words. And he did it in a very specific way. He denied the commandment of God, reversed it, and added a new commandment in its stead, and then added a truth. He said, you'll become like one of the gods, knowing good and evil. Well, later on, God says, man has become like one of us. So that part of it was true. However, the part where he said, you will surely not die, was a lie. And so this is what is recorded for us as a small sample where things are short and simple, where you can see, because there's not a lot of people around, this conversation has in it the DNA of the lie uh, that will then be propagated through these priesthoods uh, and these religions that are set up by him, the polytheistic uh, you know, faiths, and then after the age of the Holy Spirit, the, the secret societies and the, and, and the false religions, um, an attempt to undo the reality that God speaks into the world, to undo the commandments of God first, deny them, um, and then replace them with a counter, and then add a truth to it so that it has some weight. If you just... Uh, lies alone are brittle. What gives lies substance is an ounce of truth. And so this becomes a teaching for us that wherever we see this happen, we know the source. And so this is kind of how the world was altered. In fact, I would say that there are only four sources of knowledge in this entire world. One source of knowledge is uh, God. God has spoken knowledge into the world. Another source of knowledge is these guys, the fallen angels, we call them the Christian tradition. They have spoken much knowledge into the world, starting from the days before the flood, where they spoke the sciences um, that are here to help you know, shape the reality they want to create. Um, they, they perverted the knowledges that were ours to have anyways, um, because we are beings who can receive knowledge. They created false religions with a, uh, an attempt to uh, change the worldview and the path to God, uh, but they added enticing things to it. So they created these worldview machines for us. This is the second form of knowledge. It comes from these guys. The third type of knowledge comes from man himself, because man is a thinking being, and man fathoms thoughts. Now, in the cities and metropolises and empires of the world, uh, these three forms of thought braid together. They form a mismatch that creates the fourth form of thought, which is a mixing of these three, the knowledge of man, the knowledge of the fallen angels, and the knowledge of God, mixed together to form a fourth form of knowledge, which is the one that most people traffic in in multicultural modern metropolises. Um, such as this one, such as, you know, the North America. So the, this is the source of knowledge. This is how the world has taken shape. This is the, the nature of reality. So these guys have really been with us. They're very real. They're documented by all the nations. I mean, you'd have to think that our collective ancestors were all nuts, you know, from the Chinese to the Indians to the Mesopotamians, the Persians to the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, and, of course, to the Bible itself. 
they are well documented, and I argued in my documentary that we now can continue to trace their presence into the 20th century where they reinvent themselves as uh, UFOs because they have created this secular paradigm, this secular thought veil. There's several key thought veils they've created, but this is one of them. Right. Do you see evidence of the of these gods, let's say, for example, symbols in uh, existing nation-states, flags, perhaps, buildings? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yes, architecture has lots of sacred geometry in it, but as far as flags, one of my favorites is a symbol of the eagle. So um, Zeus, uh, which is, in fact, uh, Satan himself, and his imperial seat begins in the Aegean Sea and, and stretches all the way, uh, in, you know, the Aegean Sea, the birthplace, um, uh, of his empire, um, uh, the island of Minos is really where it begins, where he births uh, King Minos, who, uh, the island of Crete, sorry, the island of Crete, where the Western civilization begins, um, and Minos, his son, the first of the Nephilim kings, there's all these, you know, there's the Dorian bloodline, which is um, uh, this bloodline that comes into these tribes that are in the Aegean Sea, that are from, you know, the children of, 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 of this being. And his symbol is, one of his symbols is the eagle, but at that ends up becoming one of his favorite symbols. So when he expands his empire from the Greek world to the Roman world, he changes his name to Jupiter. And once the Roman world kind of, you know, expands and is about to, to fall, and, um, and he, he restarts the whole thing through the Germanic tribes. And so we see that symbol on the flags, um, of Europe, and of course we see it all the way into the New World uh, as he expands. You know, his empire goes essentially from the Aegean Sea all the way to um, to California, and the symbol of the eagle. And so when uh, Constantinopolis falls uh, to the invading Muslim armies, uh, the Ottoman Turks, um, the princess of the Roman family that still rules there leaves and goes to Moscow, and so Moscow declares itself the third Rome and takes on the symbol of Byzantium, which was the older name for Constantinopolis, and that symbol is the two-headed eagle, which you still now see on their flag, on their shield. Um, after the fall of communism, you know, they revert back to it. And so the eagles of Rome stand from Moscow to D.C., and if you kind of went to the Bosphorus, um, where, I where Istanbul is, where Europe and Asia meet, if you do, drew a line right through the Bosphorus, you will see that west of this line, all the way from Moscow through Europe into D.C., that is the realm of the Prince of Greece. That is the realm of the one that the Bible refers to as Satan. That is his imperial seat, his throne, which was something that Christ talks about in, in the book of Revelation in chapter 2, the throne of Zeus, the throne of Satan, he calls it, even though it was a very important, you know, uh, the most important altar of Zeus in Pergamum, that has been dismantled and taken to Berlin, where it is to this day, at the end of the 19th century, which was kind of the very time we see the rise of this alternative spirituality that leads to the Nazis and to kind of a new world order that we are still building. So this is one of the symbols, the symbol of the eagle. It's uh, one of the most important symbols. Um, you've got the... Um, uh, you know that pitchfork that Poseidon has? Yes. Uh, um, the, the, the trident? Yes, it's on so, the Maserati. <laughs> it, 
it's on the Maserati, right? So the Maserati, you know, is a, is a car, um, but it is also in many, many nations, all, all the way from the furthest east. Uh, you know, the crescent of the moon, of course, is another symbol. The moon god had more temples built to it than any of the other uh, deities in the Middle East. We have unearthed more temples to the moon god than any other one. So between these things, and there are many more, um, I've been analyzing the flags. They claim their territories. Oh, here's a good one. If you Google territorial landmarks or territorial stones, uh, when I went to the British Museum in London, uh, I was surprised to see these giant stones, which were boundary markers, and on top of every one, there was the symbol of the gods, which protected these boundaries. And suddenly it reminded me of this passage in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 and 9, where it says that the nations were given to the hands of these guys, well, they had these boundary markers, and it was under their protection. And then God says that he then will give Jacob a land, and he will be its protector, and so that it becomes eventually the Holy Land, which becomes a setting of the rest of the story of the Bible, and it still is a matter of contention to this day. And so it's important to understand that we're talking about principalities and powers. We're not talking about nations or people. People are noble from all over the place. People are, uh, you know, are, are born an idea. They believe things in their hearts, and 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 you know, uh, they're they're on a path of their own. Um, it's not about people. It's not about saying this nation is bad or that nation is good or this person is good or that nation, is good. because it really every every nation has the good, the bad, and the ugly in it. It's it's about principalities. We are simply pointing to the superstructure that is on top of the human world. They are not visiting our world, you see, these UFOs. We are living in the world that they have birthed through the knowledge they have put into it. All civilizations claim their genesis to the gods. Some guy goes on top of a mountain, comes down with a code of law. It's very complex. It's very deep. It governs every aspect of life. And bada-boom, a civilization is born. The most recent example of this, of course, is the birth of Islam from our point of view. You know, here is a small group of people living in a desert, flanked by two ancient and great civilizations, the Greek and the Persians, and suddenly one man, and they have an oral tradition, says he's receiving communique from his God. And as after his death, when that is written down, an alphabet is created to contain it, in these recitations, bada-boom! an entire civilization is born, the Islamic civilization, and within a hundred years it conquers the Greco and you know Persian world and forms the boundaries you see today. This is the story of the birth of all civilizations, whether it's the story of Moses going up on a mountain and the Hebrew nation is born, or whether it's the story of the Vedic gods. Um, when you look at the history of India, it's like hunter-gatherer, silence, you know, whatever you want to call it, and bada-boom, 3,500 years B.C., the Vedic, you know, knowledge begins, and and the the Hindu Valley civilization is born. So, um, does that mean that these these princes, these fallen angels, are fighting amongst themselves as well for for world domination? I think so. I think so. I think that there, the kingdom of Satan. Uh, again, this is just a conjecture, but the kingdom of Satan, I believe, is is one uh, of contention, and that is why we see all these wars. Even what's happening right now between Iran and the United States. And, and, and the Muslim world in the West, I think is kind of the two princ- main principalities, the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Greece. These are the two principalities. 
and as they're kind of you know hashing out something. And when it's hashed out and they unite, then I think we have the final empire prophesied, you know, in the scriptures. And that's this is the subject of one of the books I'm writing. It's called The Three Princes, where I'm going to show the boundaries of these two principalities um, and, and lots of information going to the ancient world, showing the foundation of their empire, of their, their main cities, their symbols, and it sheds so much light on biblical prophecy and understanding all of this. So the study of these things is very important. Um, and by the way, this very key verse, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 and 9, which I said was found in the Greek translation uh, of the Old Testament, well, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, we found many copies of the book of Deuteronomy in there. And this is the oldest Hebrew copy we have of the book. And in there as well, it says that the nations were divided according to the number of the sons of God. Mm. And so this is not just, you know, in this Greek translation, it's also in the oldest Hebrew translation. So why was it changed in the Masoretic, in the translation that is at the basis of most of our Bibles? Well, I, I don't know, perhaps uh, the people that were there wanted to hide something. Uh, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I'll tell you, I used to talk about these things, and for a while I wasn't. And when I came back to it, I was on a show like this, sharing, and I had this Bible in my hand, which is on my iPhone. It's the ESV version. And I brought this verse up, and I, was, and I expected it to say the children of Israel, and I was going to now explain that that is not really perhaps the original translation. It doesn't jive with the rest of the context of, of how the Bible divides things up. And I started to read it, and suddenly it had been changed. In the ESV, it has been changed. It now says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. So I think there, there's an awakening coming, happening, and this is part of the, of the puzzle. Um, you look at a passage from the writings of Moses. He says, they sacrificed unto devils, not to God, they sacrificed to devils, not to God. So he's talking about ancient people. He says they provoked him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed unto devil, not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. So he's kind of saying that these ancient people that we're sacrificing to these so-called gods, we're actually sacrificing to devils, Moses says. Mm. Now you fast forward to the New Testament, to the letter that Paul writes to the Greek city of Corinth, and he says, but I say that these things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that you would have fellowship with devils. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. So as a Jewish Pharisee, um, Paul, as, as basically, you know, kind of a rabbi, Paul is actually drawing this from the writings of Moses and the Torah. And he is equating the, the gods of his generation that the Greeks are involved with in the city of Corinth to the devils, the way that Moses equated the gods of his generation to the devils. So there's a continuity, and this continues to this day. And the discovery of thousands of passages about this, you know, really was 
very important to us. So we, we realized that there were three main things that were passed down. One was the scepter of rule. The kings were chosen, starting, as it says in the Sumerian king list, in the city of Eridu, the most ancient city found by archaeologists. It says in the most ancient government document we have, the Sumerian king list, that it was in Eridu that kingship descended from heaven to earth. But in the Sumerian, it says Enlilship, which is the name of the guy, uh, you know, the main deity of the pantheon. His scepter descended in the city of Eridu. And you can follow that scepter all the way to the modern age. Um, and so that was one thing that they passed down, the scepter of rule. The other was knowledge of all kinds. And the third was the injection of their own seed. And so uh, this is kind of what we documented in our documentary, UFOs, Angels, and Gods, even though I see with hindsight that a lot of people focus on the part about the Nephilim, but there was a larger context that we were placing it in, that, that these guys, the Watchers, well, in the Book of Enoch, the good guys are called Watchers, and the bad guys are called Watchers too. In the Book of Daniel, the angel that comes from heaven fights with the angel that is on earth behind the Persian Empire for 21 days and has to call for backup. Both of the sides use these chariots. Both of these sides are at war with each other. This is the larger umbrella that defines the phenomenon of the gods of the UFOs. It's the angelic war. It's the angelic reality as a whole. Now, it's true that a third has rebelled against God and has fallen under judgment and, and has dragged you know, the Adam into, into this tale because I guess he was competition. You know, Satan coveted the, the place that was reserved for Adam because he was made in the image of God and has a great destiny, and he has kind of created alternate realities for us. But there is one giant umbrella that, in a way, unites all these topics, the UFOs, the angels, the gods, and, and the Bible is kind of the mega-narrative that sheds light and connects all these dots to form, you know, a single expression of history, which I consider to be the true nature of reality. Ali, how do we find out um, more about... Uh, your documentary, uh, UFOs, Angels, and Gods, and uh, how do we get your newsletter? Go to my website, thinkagainproductions.com, thinkagainproductions.com, watch it, and you can uh, sign up for my newsletter right on the website and do. There's lots of new stuff coming, and you can go to my YouTube channel, thinkagainproductions.com. Uh, you know, you, you'll find it if you double-click on the documentary, it'll take you to the YouTube channel and sign up for the YouTube channel because there's videos coming, uh, and you can also press on the donation button because, um, you know, we, we need funds to create the things that we do and to uh, live. Uh, so, you know, you can donate once or you can set up a multiple donation system where a donation comes to us every single month from you, and we would really appreciate that. And if you have any questions or comments, don't hesitate to send them in. And really, God bless everyone who's listening. The point is really to bring truth and light and love to, to people uh, by shedding light on many topics, including the reality of these principalities. It's really not to offend anyone out there. Thinkagainproductions.com. Thanks, Ali. You're welcome. Thank you, Richard, for having me. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash to tell you some news about an upcoming episode. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. 
A donation of $50 a month places you in the Star Chamber. $20 a month is the Whistleblower Tier. And a donation of just $10 per month makes you a Truth Seeker. Star Chamber and Whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me. And all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, who is Justin Trudeau? Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 